Uh, we'll be in Romans chapter 5. I planned, I planned to do two verses and then I got deep into verse 1 and decided one verse is probably enough. So let's read uh, Romans 5 verse 1. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But before we jump into that text, obviously, especially with some new ears here, let's back up a little bit and go, go and remind ourselves what we're looking at right here. Obviously, we're looking at the book of Romans, which is the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the church there in Rome. And he says in chapter 1, he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you there at Rome also. To the Christians there at Rome, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you. And remember, we mentioned back then that the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel isn't just that, that door by which you step into the Christian faith. It's that thing by which you eat on and feed yourself on and grow as a Christian. So it's not just for unbelievers, it's for believers too. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, you Christians there. And that's what Paul set out to do in this book of Romans. And if you remember, we went from Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And he dealt with bad news. He went, instead of the gospel, which means good news, he starts with the bad news. And he deals with how bad man is. From Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way to Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. It's about how bad man is. And it wasn't just a spe specific man he was talking about. He's he first he dealt with the Gentiles, and you guys are all guilty. Then he goes over to the Jews and shows you guys are all guilty. Then he says, just in case you thought maybe you snuck in there somewhere, he says there's none good. No, not one. And not only are you bad, but everything about you is bad. Right? Not only have you sinned against God, but everything that you do is sinful against God. What you look at, what you say, what you touch, where you go. And he left us there, didn't he? And says, every mouth will be stopped. That's what he says. Every mouth will be stopped by the law. But then he says, but now the righteousness of God, which is manifest without the law, right? That God, though you're guilty before God, He's manifests His righteousness apart from the law, without the law. Why? Because you're bad. You can't keep the law. We saw that week in and week out for a long time. All we have to do is break the law. But God revealed His righteousness without the law. How did He do that? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ comes down from heaven, right? Born of a virgin. Fulfills the law in our place, right? He keeps the whole law. Then He walks to that Roman cross and dies. And then we saw last week, and He was raised for our justification. So he wasn't just dead in the grave and he stays there. He's not just dead hanging on a cross. I know we see these crucifixions or whatever and it's a Jesus hanging on the cross, but that's not our Lord. Our Lord didn't end there. Three days later, he rose from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and it says he sat down. When he sits down, that means he was victorious. The mission was complete. I have redeemed my people. And I sit down and make intercession for the saints. And then we get to this part, portion right here in Romans chapter 5. Obviously, it's a transition from, remember Romans chapter 4, he was kind of 
He deals with justification by faith alone in chapter 3. He kind of he, he declares justification by faith alone. What does that mean? It means that we are just before God. We are righteous before God. Not by our works, but simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4 he says, This is nothing new. There's not, what he, there's not a verse that says that. But this is pretty much what he's saying. This is nothing new. Look back at Abraham. How was Abraham just before God? Abraham was before the law. It was before circumcision, and it was apart from works. He believed, and it was counted unto him to righteousness. And then we get to here, the verse five, or chapter five, verse one, and he says, "Therefore." So the first point is justification leads to and gives peace. Now that Paul has dealt extensively with justification by faith alone, he now moves on. Even though he does, in fact, move on, he doesn't stray far from this doctrine, does he? Paul never strays far from this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Everything goes back to that, does it not? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And as I said last week, and I pray, and I pray you all hold me accountable to this too, this pulpit will never stray far from justification by faith alone. The gospel will be present here. Now, not every single week will we deal with that specifically just that. We may deal with other different topics, but they're all going to point back to that. And that what, what happens when you're pointing back to justification by faith alone? It's not about faith, like I said last week. It's about Christ. We may deal with other things, but the main thing will be justification through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And that's what Paul is doing. That's what Paul is always doing. In his epistles, he always starts with doctrine, with his Christology, or his theology. He's teaching you about God. And then he says, therefore, act like this. Because this is true about God and about you, therefore, act like this. He does that over and over again in all his epistles. Now, Paul always does teach doctrine first, then go to practical, but we're not there yet in Romans. Even though it says, it says, therefore, it's not that therefore, actually. That happens in chapter 12. We'll be there in five or six years. <laughs> so this, therefore, is to build more doctrine on justification by faith alone. I've taught you justification by faith alone. I've given you an example from the Old Covenant of somebody who was justified by faith. Therefore, being justified by faith. We have peace with God. That's the doctrine of this section, verses 1 through 11. Peace with God. Or we could say the fruit of justification, right? That's what it is. It's the fruit. Peace with God is the fruit of justification. And as I mentioned last week, this is the question of humanity in a different form, right? How do I have peace with God? We, there's, there's two funerals happening in the next few days. The question that many people will think is, how can I have peace with God? And they hope the person in the casket right there is at peace with God. That's all they care about at that time, right? When they're in that casket, you think they're worried about their 401k? Their bank account? Their electric bill? What are they worried about? I hope they're at peace with God. Because that's all that matters, right? 
That's the great question of humanity. Remember last week I, I, I phrased it more like this. How can a man be just with God? And we dealt with that. Or, how can an unjust man be counted just by God? Because that's what really where we're at, right? We're not just men and women. We are unjust men and women. You say, well, I'm not unjust. Well, have you ever broken God's law at one time? Because if you are, you're unjust. Ever lied one time? Ever stolen one time? Ever lusted one time? The book of James tells us you've, you've kept the whole law, yet you offend in one point, you're guilty of all of it. So how can an unjust man be counted just by God? <clears throat> We've seen that it's through imputed righteousness. Right? We saw that. It's that God counts us just. It's not that He makes us just and all of a sudden we become perfect and we never sin again, right? And that's not what happens when God saves us. It's not like all of a sudden, boom, and I walk through life and I never sin again. I never have a lustful thought. I never, I never think about, I never think evil of anybody, right? That doesn't happen, does it? But God counts us just. Why? Because you're just? No. Because His Son was just in the place. So, we have this justification through imputed righteousness and now we have peace. So if you're justified by faith, you have peace. So the question is, is that you this morning? Right? Do you have peace with God this morning? Right now? And this isn't just a peace. This isn't just, do you have peace this morning? This is, do you have peace with God? This isn't what the governments of the world mean by peace either, is it? When they say it, it mostly means peace as long as you do everything I tell you to do. Right? You can have peace in this world as long as you do everything I tell you to do. And that, you don't have peace. You have obedience on your side, but no peace. That's how our world works, though, isn't it? But now in God's economy, He not only declares you'll have peace if you obey, but He obeys for you. And then when you trust in Him, that obedience is given to you, and therefore you have peace given to you. God does all of it. This is why we would say we're monergists for the most part. I know it just means one working in salvation. One did all the work, and it wasn't me. It was God. He did all the work. And we see that, right? Paul has clearly taught us that this obedience is given to us by faith, and therefore we have peace. He's clearly taught us that. that. First, he's taught us that you can't obey, that you're unjust, that God in Christ came down, born of a virgin, fulfilled the law in your place, He obeyed for you, then died under the wrath of God against lawbreakers. Yet He wasn't a lawbreaker. You were. And he rose victorious over the grave, Satan, hell, and death. And he ascended up to the right hand of the Father. Now if you put your trust in him, you have been justified and have peace with God. That's pretty much the, the gist of what Paul's taught us in Romans 1-4, through 4, right? Romans 1-4 through 4 in a nutshell is that you can't obey. 
that you are counted just not by keeping the law, not by circumcision, not by your works, but simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me expound a little bit on this peace with God. First, there's two different kinds of peace you have as a Christian. First, there's peace with God, which is what we'll be dealing with here, and I'll expound on that a little in a, in a minute. But there's also the peace of God, or peace from God. This is a different peace than peace with God. The peace of God is, I have as a sub point right here. In order to have the peace of God, you must have peace with God. However, one doesn't necessarily equal the other. Just because you have peace with God doesn't mean you have the peace of God. Or peace from God. The peace of God is that tranquil spirit, if you will. It's that, that mind and heart that are resting in the sovereignty of God in the midst of life's storms. That's what the peace of God is. In order to have this, you must have peace with God, but just because you're at peace with God doesn't mean that you have this. And I know some of us have experienced this, right? If you're a Christian here, I know you've experienced this. Yes, you have peace with God, but life happens, right? I'm still at peace with God no matter what's going on around me. Life happens, and then it's fitting. You throw a temper tantrum like, like, a, like a two-year-old, right? That's what happens. That's what we do as, as people, do we not? This is in my notes. I'm not saying this. <laughs> but at that moment, you don't have the peace of God. When life happens and you start throwing a fit, you don't have the peace of God at that time. But you still have peace with God because that never leaves you. Peace with God is something that's anchored in Christ, the Prince of Peace. This peace of God is somewhat subjective. Though I kind of don't like that term. Lloyd-Jones says it's always subjective. I would like to have a discussion with you on that, but I'll have to wait until I get the glory for that. But it, it's subjective, and it's, and it's how you respond in the midst of war, really, right? Y'all see that? That's it. We're part of a spiritual war, are we not? It's taking place all around us, all the time. The peace of God is how you respond in the midst of that. Is it like a spiritual toddler or a mature man or woman in Christ? That's, that's, you can gauge it like that, right? Is it when, when everything's going wrong and I'm over here curled up in the corner sucking my thumb? Or do I, I don't know if there's a term for it. I say man up, but woman up too. Is it man up or woman up and, 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 and go through this trial, right? Let me add this too. It's not just how you respond outwardly. There's many times we could be going through a trial and we respond outwardly calm and peace, but inwardly we're like a fiery furnace ready to explode, right? And actually, maybe we actually are exploding on the inside. Maybe we are actually cussing you out with a smile on my face, right? On the inside. Hopefully we don't do that. 
But we Southerners know something about this, right? I say we Southerners. See, I threw myself in there. I mean, in the Bible Belt, one of the favorite sayings is, bless your heart. Bless their heart. You know what that means? Really? That means, it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. It means I said something nice, but inside I'm saying all kinds of mean and hurtful things about you. That's not true peace, is it? That's a false peace. That's fake. And we ought not to be like that. So the peace of God goes deeper than your outward appearance. It goes to your heart and your mind, and that's where the root of it is. And let me add this as well. This peace comes from God as Father, Creator, Savior, and Comforter. In other words, it comes from you resting in the Father as a Father to you. It comes from trusting the Creator of the universe to take care of you. Can you not? It comes from resting in Him as your Savior who cannot nor will not lose you. It comes from you resting in the Comforter who dwells inside you as a Christian. He, the Holy Spirit, is the source of this peace of God. Nobody without the Holy Spirit has the peace of God. But when He comes, He gives us comfort. It says in 2 Corinthians 1.3, it says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. And Jesus said, remember in John 14.26, He says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance whatsoever things I have said to you. The Comforter is the Holy Ghost. And that's where our peace comes from. It's from Him. The peace of God comes from the Holy Spirit. But it's only exhibited in times of distress. Right? In this sense. Do you need peace the peace of God, that tranquil spirit when everything's peaceful around you. You don't need it then, do you? I mean, it doesn't show up. You may have it then, but it doesn't show up. It shows up when war's around you, right? When everything's breaking down, when everything's going wrong. When you think nothing else could go wrong today and then you kick the door or something and break your toe. And as you're falling, you hit your arm and break your arm. <laughs> You don't need peace within when everything is peaceful, but it's when it's in disarray. Let me, now I expounded a little bit on the peace of God, let me expound a little bit on peace with God. But first, let me start with the negative. If there is peace with God, if there is peace with God, there must also be war with God. Right? I mean, in order for some people have peace with God, therefore other people do not. 
Not everyone is at peace with God, right? It says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So some are at war with God. And actually you were as well. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. In verse 20 and 21. Jason, will you read that when you get down? Verses 20 and 21? Yeah, Colossians 1, 20 and 21. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in the body and the flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Alright, you see, it says hostile in mind. That's that ESV? Yeah. Same thing. KJV says enemies in your mind. You're an enemy in your mind. You're hostile in your mind. And it says, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind. Who's he writing to? Believers in classy, right? He's writing to believers and says, you are an enemy in your mind. Notice Paul didn't say, and they are enemies in their minds, but you who are an enemy. This word means hated or odious or hostile or opposing another. So in other words, you in your mind were at war with God. And there are many today who still are. Those who hate God are enemies of God. That's really what this means. And I know if you ask somebody, they'll never say, well, I hate God. He's my enemy. I'm at war with Him. How many people do you think will say that when you ask them? None Nobody's going to say that, right? But notice in the text it says, by their wicked works. They're enemies in their minds. They're enemies of God by their wicked works. So though they may not admit that they're an enemy of God, their works testify of it. So your mouth doesn't profess it, but your actions betray you. Turn with me to James chapter 4. verse 4. Jesse, do you mind reading that? 4 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is an enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's harsh, right? James is harsh there towards us. He's right in believers too. And he says, you adulterers, don't you know friendship with the world is being an enemy of God? It's the same word. The same word that's used in Colossians, being enemies of your minds. That's the same word that's used here, that you're an enemy of God. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That's what it says. Friendship with the world is to be at war with God is to be an enemy of God. And we can actually see this demonstrated in the life and ministry of our Lord, right? Didn't He say in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated Me before it hated you? 
When he came, the world was at war with him. They hated him. He said, I don't think so. They, he hung on a cross. It wasn't because they loved him. When they were yelling, crucify him. In John 15, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And John tells us, he says, marvel not, brethren, that the world hates you. That's far from us today, isn't it? We, we tend to love the world more than maybe John did. Or Peter. Or Paul. And the world will hate you. Why? Because they hated Christ. And it still does. That hasn't changed. So that's the war with God. If, if you're not justified by faith, you are at war with God. You're at war with God. Now to the, to the positive of this. Peace with God. Yes, there are those that are at war with God, but according to this text, it's not Christians. It's not those who have been justified by faith. Those who have trusted Christ as their Savior have peace with God. Well, what does this look like, right? I'm sure you can imagine war with God, but this is the opposite. Let me, let me demonstrate, let me show you the negative to prove the positive one. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, 19 through 26. <clears throat> Zach, will you read 19 through 26? Yeah, it says, And when the Lord saw it, he, had, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger, mine anger, <clears throat> for a fire is kindled in mine anger, and shall burn unto the lowest hell, and shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap mischiefs upon them, I will spend mine arrows upon them. They shall be burnt with hunger and devoured with burning heat and with bitter destruction. I will also send the teeth and beasts upon them, the poisoned serpents of the dust. The sword without and terror within shall destroy both the young man and, and the virgin. Suck them also with the man of gray hairs. I said I would scatter them to, into the corners. I would make them for, uh, excuse me, I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men. You guys out? Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. So, no, not, not me. Yes. And verses 35 and 42. Oh, 35 through 42. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants. 
when he seeth that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock, in whom they trust? 342. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Which did eat the fat of their sacrifices, and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you, and be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven, and I say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and, and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. That's strong language. You know that's a psalm. That's Moses' psalm. Look at this. Um, I'm going to turn there real quick. It's Psalm 7. That's war language, though, is it not? We see right here in Psalm 7. In verse 11 it says, God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. That means sharpen. He will sharpen his sword, and he, will, and he hath his bow is bent and made ready. He also prepares for him the instruments of death. He ordains his arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he had made. His mischief shall fall, shall return upon his head, and his violent dealing shall come upon his own pain. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing to the sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Is that not warlike language? Over and over. He will sharpen his sword. It says in Deuteronomy, it says he will make his arrows drunk in blood. What do you think that means? You think it just means it's just barely going to pierce it? No. If it's drunk in blood, it is drenched in blood. That's warlike language. What we call this is what we call anthropomorphic language. It's not, not God is actually sitting there sharpening a sword or has his bow bent ready to actually plunge an arrow into you. But it's language that we understand, right? It's you... It's describing God in human terms that we can understand it because we couldn't understand it any other way. And even though it's anthropomorphic, we should in no way think it's less than a real war. And we do. We go about our lives as though the people aren't at war with God. Y'all know Psalm 2? It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who's His anointed? The Messiah, Christ. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in sore pleasure. But in the end of that psalm it says, blessed are they that put their trust in Him. You see that? We get the opposite. This is what peace with God actually is. I know I was, we, we were looking at some, some hard language there, but the peace with God is the opposite of that. The opposite of vexing and sore displeasure. You shall be blessed. You are not with God anymore if you've trusted in Christ. If you have, in the language of the same psalm, kissed the Son. 
If you have kissed the Son, lest He be angry. If you're in Christ today, then His bow is not bent. His sword has been set aside. He is not vexed with you. He does not abhor you. Not only that, but He has blessed you and continues to bless you. Not only do you not get the negative, but you get the positive of blessings. That's what peace with God brings. You get, remember Romans chapter 4, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's you as a Christian. As it says, Psalm 5.5, which we didn't look at, it says the Lord hates workers of iniquity. But blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Well, if you've been justified by faith in Christ alone, then your iniquity is gone. You are at peace with God. You can rest. And actually a good picture of that, not Psalm 2, but Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, whose leaf shall not wither. And everything he does shall prosper. That's you if you're in Christ. Psalm 1 is you if you're in Christ. Peace and prosperity. That's what, it's, that's what the Scriptures teach. Not prosperity like the prosperity false gospel. That all of a sudden you believe in Christ, you're going to get rich. Not all of a sudden we fill up this, this offering pan and all of a sudden you're all going to get rich. That's not it. You are guaranteed riches, but the riches in Christ. Your treasure is in heaven, right? So don't set your heart on decaying treasure here. That's what it means to have peace with God. But here's the key. The second point. That first point was a long one, so the next two are a little shorter. The second point is peace through wrath. Notice what it says in uh, Romans there. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. It doesn't end there. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace through wrath. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace with God only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something you earn by your obedience, by keeping the commandments, by being baptized, by reading the Bible, by coming to church, by giving, by praying. It, that's not how you earn peace with God. It's only through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's as the Reformers would say, solus Christus, right? In Christ alone. He is the Prince of Peace. That's where you get peace with God. From the Prince of Peace. He's a priest. If you all know a little bit of the language on this, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was called the King of Salem, right? When you look at it in the scriptures, it says King of Salem, which is really King of Shalom, which in English is King of Peace. He's a priest after that order. He's a priest after the order of the King of Peace. He's the true King of Peace. Melchizedek was just a picture. Christ is the true King of Peace. It's His priesthood. It's not the Melchizedek priesthood. It's Christ's priesthood. Because He is the King of Peace. How did he achieve this peace with God for you? It wasn't by peace that he did it. 
Christ didn't achieve peace for you by peace. It was by the Father pouring out His wrath upon Him. That's not peaceful. It was that bow being bent that we saw, that bow being bent, to that arrow to be drunk in blood, it was done to His Son. The Father is said He was sharpening His sword, that sword was plunged into His Son. For you. Because you sinned. Not because He did. That's how this peace is achieved. It wasn't simply by just giving it, but by earning it. He earned this peace for us. You did it and couldn't earn it, but God earned it in your place. This is why it says, he, the church of God, it says in Acts 20, 28, it says, the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. You say, no. But Jesus is God, so it couldn't have been much for Him, right? He's God, so... So that, so that wrath and stuff, that could have been that big a deal. My question to you is, when's the last time you sweat blood? Remember on Mount Olive in Gethsemane there. Headed to the cross, Jesus knowing what was coming, in prayer, sweating drops of blood. I have never done that. Have you? Turn to Luke, actually, 22. We're going, to, we're going to look at this account real quick. Luke 22. And verse 39. Jamie, do you mind reading? 30, 39 through 44. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when they and and when he came to the place, he said to them, "Pray that you may not enter into temptation." And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, "Father, if you look, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." And there appeared to him an angel of he from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his uh, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I see. You see that? Being in agony, in prayer, sweat, drops of blood. You know. You know, recently, just recently, I've just read an article from 2017. They said they recently discovered that there's a condition called, and I, I, if I mess this word up, that's okay, hematohydrosis, in which if someone is experiencing high levels of stress, they may sweat blood. They just, they just discovered that, 2017. Maybe if they were to listen to, what was Luke's profession? He was a physician. And he was describing who? The great physician right there, right? And this happened 2,000 years ago. Maybe, maybe if they would have studied Scripture, they would have known that this existed for 2,000 years. But you know, physicians today just discovered it. 
However, the point being, this was no light thing for Jesus. And I tell you, it wasn't simply the death. It wasn't that he was, he was, he was stressed about going to die. It wasn't that he was stressed and had in agony because men were going to kill him. It was he was in agony because he knew the wrath of God was going to be poured upon him. That wrath that you and I could never take. That wrath that if you die today and you're outside of Christ, you will spend all of eternity under that wrath. Forever. Never being able to pay for it. For not one second will you ever be that wrath ever be lifted up off you. That's what he was going to. That's what he was in agony about. But it says in Hebrews, right? That he endured the cross, despising the shame. Who for the joy set before him. It wasn't the joy of the cross. It was the joy that comes from the other side. That I'm going to redeem my people. There was that war type language actually taking place on him. And it was by this act that we have peace with God. How? Because your sins are paid for. If you're a Christian, your sins are paid for. That's what, it, you know the word is in Greek is to tell us die. When, when Christ was hanging on the cross and He said, it is finished. The Greek is there to tell us die. It means it was paid in full. It's like when we go to, say, you go to a restaurant and they bring you out the check and you, you put your card on there and they bring back the check as paid, right? That's what happened with your sins. Paid in full. Completely. Every single one of them. Then the Scripture says He would not allow His Holy One to suffer corruption. So Christ wouldn't stay in the grave. He was raised from the grave on the third day. Do you think He did all this in vain? He did this that all the elect would have peace with God. And we do, as He promised, right? Last point of doctrine here is peace with God doesn't mean peace with others. This is why I didn't make it to verse 2. Because I thought I could have finished up verse 1 right there and I could have went right into verse 2. But this was nagging me to, to, to bring this out. Peace with God doesn't mean peace with others. Just because you're at peace with God doesn't mean you'll be at peace with everybody else. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 34. 10, 34. Mayor, will you read 34 to 39? Yep. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father, or whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You hear that? He said, I think not that I am come to send peace on earth. But you're the Prince of Peace. What would happen? Your family members would hate you. Pretty much what it says. You'll be a, you, you, you will not be at peace with your family members. 
I'll come to set a man at, at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the man's foes shall be that of his own household. When the Prince of Peace came, it didn't mean that all of a sudden everybody would be at peace. I like, we, we like to sing the Christmas song, Peace on Earth, you know. But when the Prince of Peace come, it did not bring peace to men. And I, I'm sure some of you dealt with this. Some of your family members hate you because you're a Christian. Maybe you gave up drinking with them or something, or drugs with them, or just hanging out and discussing your little stupid movies or video games or whatever it is. Maybe, maybe you realize life is more than that when you laid it down for Christ. And now they don't like you. Maybe you had these friends, friends that all of a sudden you got, the Lord saved you, and they disappeared. And all you did is talk to them about Jesus. All I did is my friends come around, I started talking to them about Jesus, and I thought maybe the Lord saved them and raptured them because they just disappeared and I never saw them again. <laughs> all I ever did is mention Christ, right? But you think that's bad? How about if you're living in the Middle East and you come to Christ? You think all of a sudden you have peace over there? Absolutely not. They don't just lose friends over there. They lose their heads. They're murdered for following Christ. However, those martyrs have peace with God. Though their family, member, family members turn them over to be killed. This happens. I'm not making up this. This happens. You come to Christ in the Middle East, your family member may go and turn you in. And guess what happens to you? You get killed. But guess what? They have peace with God. Right? Though today, like I should check on this number again, but the last time I checked, which was years ago, was 435 people killed every single day for naming Christ. Today, this is, I'm not talking about first century, I'm talking about now. 435 people killed every single day just for claiming Christianity. Guess what? They all have peace with God. All 435 have peace with God. Though they have no peace here among men, what does that matter if you have peace with God? Like I mentioned earlier, that person laying in the casket, do you think they care so much about peace with men at that point? And as I've already mentioned, if you're in Christ, the world will hate you because it hated Him. Don't expect peace, but try to be a peacemaker. We're called peacemakers. We're, we are trying to have peace, but we can't always. And the quote, I know it's one of Jason's favorites from Martin Luther, it says, peace is possible, but truth at all costs, right? That's where we should stand. As a believer in Jesus Christ today, you should strive for peace, but don't reject or ignore truth to have it. Peace with God is more important than peace with men. So look to Him for peace. And today, if you don't know the Prince of Peace, God is calling you to repent and believe. Not necessarily Jeremy that's standing up here. God is calling you to repent and believe in His Son today. Your works have condemned you. And you are on a path to hell today. 
his bow is bent, and it says he's sharpening his sword. You've not known the way of peace, as Paul said in Romans chapter 3. However, he in his mercy allowed you to hear the gospel message this morning. And now the call is to turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. Be saved. Have peace with God this morning. Because that's all that's going to matter. I know any believer here would be ready and willing to speak to you about this peace too. They have known it, and they know the blessing it is today. So look to Christ now, not later, because He's mighty to save. Amen. I only have one point of application this morning. It won't be long. Because we have peace with God, we should have the peace of God. I believe this is the main thing that we should apply from this verse. Today, if you are justified by faith in Christ, you have peace with God and therefore should have the peace of God. This means that when it seems everything is falling down around you, you are calm, you are still, and you are patient. We should have that, should we not, as Christians? Do you have that today? When everything's hectic around you, are you stressed or are you calm? You know what will make you calm? Trusting in God in those moments. Those moments where it seems like everything's going wrong. Trust in God. Has God always provided for you? Does He not have the cattle on a thousand hills? Can He not afford to give you one? Proverbially speaking. Return to Matthew chapter 6. We're Matthew, well, I'm in Matthew 10, so... Matthew 6. I'm going to ask you, Jason, to read this last one. 6, uh, 25 through 34. Do not be anxious. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put, in or put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you're not of, are you not of more value than they? Which of you are being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Through the end of uh, 34. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you think if you listen to, obey, or apply this area of Scripture to your life, it'll give you peace? Or not? Do you think if, if when God says, be anxious for nothing, don't worry about what you need to eat, what you need to drink, what you need to wear, I will take care of you? Do you think trusting in this, applying this to your life is going to give you more peace? 
When it says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you, it most certainly will give us peace. And you notice he doesn't just say that, just be, don't be anxious. He says, look around. Right? Look at creation. Don't just, not just don't be anxious, but look. The birds, they get taken care of. Are you not more valuable than a bird? Look, the grass gets taken care of. It's just going to grow and be burned up. Are you not more valuable than that? Look at creation. The creator, the same creator that created you and takes care of you, takes care of that. Therefore, rest in Him. Don't fret. Have a peaceful spirit, don't you? Because honestly, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Die? As a Christian, what's the worst thing that happens to us if we die? Think, uh, is that so bad? I mean, Paul said for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you say that? If you can, you should have peace, the peace of God this morning. And having that peace is a huge blessing. It's, it's being like Christ on the boat in the middle of a storm. That's what it's like. He was at peace, was he not? He was asleep. <laughs> he wasn't a fisherman. He was out on a boat with fishermen and they were all scared they were going to die. And he's laying there asleep. They were all in turmoil. Lord, how can you sleep? We're going to die. And what did he do? Did he wake up and all that? We are. We're going to die. No. Peace, be still. Calm the storm. Now that really happened. That did really. That's a real historical narrative. But figuratively, have you ever been like that? And I don't like to use a, a historical narrative to try to teach something, but I mean, some around you are panicking and you're calm. You ever been like that? You see, you see the panic around you and you're calm. You have the peace of God. What do you do in that situation? You calm them down. Do you not? It's okay. God takes care of you. Don't worry. That's part of this peace. And it's a peace that you can spread, right? It says, I already read the verse earlier, 2 Corinthians 1.4, where it says, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. You think God comforts you and you just keep it to yourself? No, you use it to comfort others. It's a blessing that you can share with others. If you have peace with God this morning, this peace of God is something that you should have too. So let's strive for this. If you're justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, let's have the peace of God today, no matter our trials and tribulations. It says, I think Jesse actually prayed this earlier, cast all your cares on Him, for He cares for us. Where should you go if you're stressed? To the throne. Right? Go to His throne in prayer, casting all your cares upon Him. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given to us. We thank you for this time of worship, Father. Let's pray that your people were edified, Lord, that you were glorified, that your name was lifted up. 
that we could see you high and lifted up and forget about the trials and tribulations that we go through here, Lord. And we know that you have us, that you keep us, that you hold us. And it says that nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And we thank you so much for that. We rest in you this morning. Thank you for using us, blessing us, saving us, keeping us. We, we want to lay down our lives for the advancement of your kingdom and that your name be glorified. In the name of Christ. Amen.